Um, I, I recognize some of you may not have been here last night. And last night, uh, I told you the story uh, about the life, the very brief life, of, and then the death of my daughter, Hope. And, uh, you know, when, when David and I got married, um, we have Matt, who's 20. And then when we had Hope, uh, who was born with a rare metabolic disorder called Zellweger syndrome, that means that both David and I are carriers of the recessive gene trait for that syndrome. Can you remember back to your high school biology class, that one week you spent on genetics, right? (laughs) And do you remember what it takes to have a child with blue eyes? Remember how both parents have the recessive gene trait for blue eyes? And so that means whenever they have a child, that child has a 25% chance of having blue eyes. And so once David and I had a child with Zellweger syndrome and then knew that we both were carriers of that recessive gene trait, that meant that we knew that whenever we have a child, that child has a 25% chance of having that fatal syndrome. We didn't know that when we had Matt. Uh, But after we had hope, then we knew. And so that meant we had a really difficult decision to make about whether or not we would have any more children. Maybe that seems simple to you one way or the other. Of course not, or of course. (laughs) Uh, It didn't seem simple to us. Um, For one thing, our lives aren't just us. Um, I mean, we, we loved and enjoyed hope, and she brought so much meaning into our lives. I know as as I talk about my experience with her, what, what's probably easiest for you to imagine is the pain of it and that it's probably harder for you to imagine the joy of it. But I promise you it was there. It was such a joy to have her. And so it wasn't an, an easy, quick thing that we would say no to that again, quite frankly. But, you know, our lives aren't just us. Um, there's Matt, who, you know, lived six months with a baby sister that he knew was going to die. And then many months after that with a really sad mom, (laughs) which couldn't have been a lot of fun. And uh, there's our parents. um, And as hard as it is to lose a child, I think there's something especially difficult for a parent to watch their child lose a child. And it had been devastatingly difficult for my parents and for David's parents. And so we determined that the wisest thing to do was take surgical steps to prevent another pregnancy. Sometimes I tell this story with David, and I said that one time, and, and he leaned into the microphone. He said, we? <laughs> they want lots of credit for this, do they not? <laughs> so it was about a year and a half after Hope died, and uh, I woke up one morning, it was kind of that haze when you're first kind of waking up in the morning, you know, and um, was thinking through, and I, and I realized that I was late starting my period. And as I thought about it, I, I realized, you know, I'm not just late, I'm like really late. And getting ready in our room that morning, David could tell something was on my mind, and I told him what I was thinking, and it, he got this really panicked look on his face. And I said, honey... Don't worry about that. That's impossible. 
and we had a car in the shop, and I had to drive him to work that day. And so I dropped him off at work, and I, I went across the street to the Walgreens to buy a pregnancy test. <laughs> and the truth is, I really wasn't, didn't buy that test to figure out whether or not I was pregnant. In my mind, it was impossible. It was more that I had, like, a really long to-do list that day. I had so much to do. And you know how that is when something like that is hanging in the back of your mind and you can't focus? It was like... Man, I just got to take this test and rule that out so I can get on with my day because I got a lot to do. And I went home and I took the test and there were immediately two blue lines. And my heart began to pound. And I hopped in the car and I drove back up to David's office and I walked into his office and looked at him and I just went. (laughs) And we sat down And we're shaking our heads like, how did this happen? Although we did kind of (laughs) know. And uh, we talked about how both of us had gone through times when we had regretted that vasectomy decision. And how each of us would come back around, though, feeling like we had done the wise thing. We talked about how how often we felt like our family wasn't complete. And that day we felt this cautious sense of joy that perhaps God had overruled and intended to give us a healthy child to raise and enjoy that we so wanted but hadn't expected. But along with that cautious sense of joy, we felt afraid. I mean, honestly, at that point, I felt like I was just beginning to get my bearings in my grief after Hope's death. And it was like I looked up and I just thought, well, can I do this again? I mean, is it possible that God is going to yet give us another child who's going to have a short and difficult life like Hope? I mean, can I do that again? When I was there in his office, we called the geneticist, that same geneticist who had diagnosed Hope, because he had told us that we could go through prenatal testing. And, uh, in fact, he told us when we had Hope, now don't take any permanent birth control steps, because we can test very early. And, um, but we were kind of glad to know at that point that we could test to know whether or not this child would have the syndrome, not that we, that would determine whether or not we would continue the pregnancy, because that was a given to us, but we thought it would be helpful to know which way this was going to go, especially before we shared it with our friends and our family, and so I had to wait about eight weeks before I could do the testing, and then another three weeks to get the results, and finally that day that the geneticist called, and he said, I have the results, and the results are positive. And I said, positive like good news or positive like positive for Zellweger syndrome? And he said, they're positive for Zellweger syndrome. So we then knew that we would have a second child um, who would be with us a short time. Our son, Gabriel, was born in July 2001. And as you can see, he was beautiful. And he was so easy to love. (laughs) And he was such a joy to us. It was so sweet. It was... It was the same but different, if that makes sense to you. I mean, so much about 
his life and his death was similar to our experience with hope. And yet it was different because, you know, I spent that pregnancy expecting uh, this child. There wasn't that, there wasn't that sinking of disappointment and shock and uncertainty when we had hope. You know, we knew what his life was like, would be like. We knew how to care for him. And so we were able to begin the first day of his life just intent on enjoying every day that God gave us with him. Well, my quest to make some sense of my experience of loss in hopes, life, and death had caused me to dig deep into God's word to figure out who he is and what he's doing in the world, especially through that kind of loss. And so once again, as we loved another child who was going to be with us just a short time, we found ourselves asking some very significant questions. Uh, Not just why, which is the question we all have when we suffer, right? But why again? (laughs) I mean, what's up with that? (laughs) And I imagine that many of you, if not all of you, have had some kind of experience in your life when you have asked why. Why me? Why now? Why this? In the last session last night, we looked at Job's initial response to incredible loss in his life, the loss of his family and the loss of all of his possessions, the loss of his health. And as we looked at Job last night, the first couple of chapters of Job, we saw how the grace of God at work in a person's life can enable a person to respond to loss in seemingly supernatural ways. Well, this morning, as we move into the center section of Job 3 through 36, and you'll be relieved to find out we're not going to read it all, we discover that Job is now not faring quite so well. He is uh, deeply discouraged. He is absolutely miserable. At this point, his life is so miserable, he's just wishing that he had never been born. He's hurting physically. Um, he is despondent. Uh, remembering how he used to have a good reputation and now nobody will even look him in the eyes or have anything to do with him. He's complaining bitterly and he's questioning boldly. Let's just look at a few little snapshots of Job um, as to what he said. In Job 3.26, Job says, I have no peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil. Then in Job 9, verse 2, he says, I despise my life. <laughs> you ever felt that way? Job ten twelve. I loathe my life, and so I will give free reign to my complaint. Kind of like, let her rip, right? But then this one in chapter 10, verse 8, really gets me. I just picture Job looking up into the heavens, and he says to God, Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now destroy me? So after Job has seemed kind of too good to be true in Job 1 and 2, I think it helps us a little bit to see his humanness here, doesn't it? Because this is what we do when we suffer, isn't it? That we we start off and um, we're strong for the battle. (laughs) And then as the shock wears off 
and the dailiness of difficulty sets in in our lives and we find ourselves stuck in a place of unimaginable, unimaginable suffering. This, that initial rush gives way to the dailiness of difficulty which can lead to despair. And we are desperate for comfort, desperate for relief from the hurting and even more desperate, I think, for some answers. This morning, we're going to look at the questions Job had in the midst of his suffering, the questions that you and I have in the midst of our suffering. And the first question we're going to ask and try to answer is this question of who, ha- who is to blame? Or another way we might say the same question is, what is the cause? What, what caused my suffering? Well, Job's friends were quite confident that they knew the answer to this question. What was it? Somebody? Aha, yes. Job's suffering was Job's fault, right? Um, And isn't there a part of us that gets that? I mean, isn't there something inside us when something bad happens to we, We go, finally, I'm finally getting what I deserve, right? Isn't there a part of us that says, finally my mistake has caught up with me and I'm going to have to pay? I remember some of my first thoughts in the hospital that morning when I woke up after getting Hope's diagnosis. And some of my first thoughts were, this is my fault. You know, I didn't pray enough for a healthy child. I haven't walked with God the way he has wanted me to. And now he has had to do this to me. I'm going to have to pay for this. And I wonder if there are some of you here that... Maybe it was your struggle with infertility or miscarriage. Did you think that you struggled with those things because God was making you pay, perhaps for sexual promiscuity or perhaps an abortion in your past? Have you wondered if God took something away from you to make you pay for loving it so much? Do you find yourself walking through life kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop? Waiting for that day when you get what you feel deep down in your gut you really deserve. Well, is that how it works? Does God punish us with suffering for the mistakes we make, for the things we do that are displeasing to him? Well, ladies, if you don't hear anything else I have to say this morning, I want you to hear this. And that is that if you belong to Christ, you need never fear that your suffering is punishment for your sin. Now, how do I know that? I know that because someone has already been punished for your sin so that you don't have to be. And I don't know what you've come here thinking Christianity is about or what the gospel is, but this is it. That God poured out on Christ the punishment that you and I deserve for the shamefulest, the most shameful things we have said and done, the cruelest things we have said for our utter apathy toward God or our outright rebellion toward God. All of the punishment that you deserve For all of those things has been poured out on Christ so that God might pour out on you 
his love and mercy and forgiveness. That is the gospel. It's kind of too good to be true, isn't it? Yeah. So if our suffering isn't punishment for our sin, then what is it? What or who caused it? Who is to blame? Well, suffering can come from a variety of sources. I'll mention a few. First, some suffering is us experiencing the natural consequences of our sinful choices or the sinful choices of someone else. Proverbs 22.8 says, Those who plant injustice will harvest disaster. There's that sense of reaping what we sow repeatedly in the Bible, right? And we all recognize that a lot of our suffering we have brought on ourselves by our own bad choices. And the reality is God does not step in to shield us from experiencing the natural consequences of our sin. And likewise, he does not always step in to shield us from experiencing the natural consequences of someone else's sin. When someone is a victim of sexual abuse, she's not experiencing the natural consequences of her own sin, but of someone else's sin. When someone is killed by a drunk driver, they're experiencing the natural consequences in this world of someone else's sinful choice. But there's a difference, isn't there, between punishment that's meant to make you pay and experiencing the natural consequences of what you've done? A second cause of suffering is that some suffering is the natural result of living in a fallen, broken world. I mean, sometimes, so much of our suffering it, is just this natural result of living in a world where the curse has infiltrated everything. We live in a world that is broken to the core because of the effects of sin on this world. Romans 8 describes what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. It says, against its will, everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. This world is cursed. And the process for breaking this curse and its brokenness began when Christ became flesh and when he took the curse of the world upon himself on the cross. When that happened... Christ set in motion a process by which he is breaking the curse. He is relieving the world of the curse. He set in motion the process that's going to lead to restoration to perfection when he returns. But that process isn't complete. So here we find ourselves living between the time of the cross when he set in motion this process to relieve us of the curse and his return when finally the curse is gone for good. You know, sometimes I wonder, when, when something bad happens, why nobody ever says, I am so mad at sin. <laughs> what do we say instead? Huh? I'm mad at God, right? <laughs> I mean, shouldn't we lay the blame For the brokenness of this world that brings us so much pain where it really belongs. At sin. And sin's power to hurt us. Shouldn't the suffering of this world cause us 
not to turn away from Christ, but cause us to fall at his feet so thankful for what he was willing to do to break the break this curse in our world. So some suffering is natural consequences for our sin or someone else's sin, and some is the natural result of living in a world that is broken. And some sin is actually the... Some suffering is actually the supernatural work of Satan. We, we saw that last night in Job's story, didn't we? That Satan has this goal. Somebody remember what it was? He, oh, drive a wedge, excellent. He wants to alienate us from God. In fact, according to 1 Peter 5, 8, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, how does Satan devour us? Satan, out of his desire to destroy us, brings suffering in our lives in an effort to alienate us from God, in an effort to destroy our faith. And Jesus talked about Satan's supernatural involvement in suffering. You'll remember perhaps this conversation he had with Simon Peter when he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have pleaded for you in prayer that your faith will not fail. Not that you will be kept from the suffering of that sifting, but that your faith will not fail in it. And it's interesting to notice that Satan's purpose... In Job's and Peter's life is the same. He wants to drive a wedge between them and God. You see, Satan uses suffering as a tool to seek to destroy our faith and confidence in God. But ladies, what's interesting is this same tool of suffering that Satan wants to use to seek to destroy your faith in the hands of God can become a tool he will use to develop your faith. The same circumstance that Satan sends in in a desire to tempt you to reject God, God wants to use to train you for holiness. What Satan inflicts to wound you God intends to use to prune you for greater fruitfulness. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the Lord disciplines those he loves and that no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening, but it's painful. So this shows us that for the child of God, suffering becomes a tool of loving discipline in the hands of our father. The writer of Hebrews says, endure this divine discipline because God's discipline is always good for us. Well, evidently, it doesn't feel good at the time, does it? (laughs) It feels like hardship and loss and disappointment. But what allows us as his children to endure his divine discipline is that while it's painful, we are confident it's purposeful. That it's not punitive. It's not random. It's never too harsh. It's always out of love. 
And what is the purpose? Well, the writer of Hebrews addresses that too. He says, so that afterward there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. You see, ladies, God is at work in your life, pruning your life, cutting away the dead places, the destructive patterns, so you can flourish and grow. But oftentimes that pruning, that cutting is painful, unpleasant. So if we're looking for who or what um, has brought this suffering into our lives, we cannot ignore the reality that because God is ultimately in control of this world and our lives, nothing happens to us that is not ordained by him. God is working out his loving plan for your life. And he is using what is bad in your life. Genuinely bad, could never be described as good. And yet he intends to use it for his good purposes in your life. That makes some of you perhaps think of Joseph. Remember his words he said to his brothers? I mean, His brothers have done great evil to him. They sold him off as a slave and they told his father he's dead. They were responsible for the cruelty. Certainly Joseph experienced the natural consequences of someone else's sin as he spent years as a slave and then in prison, right? And yet when his brothers come before him, Joseph is very aware of God's sovereign hand at work in his life. And so he says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant this for good, for the saving of many lives. Joseph recognized God's sovereignty in his suffering and that from the very beginning, God intended to use it for good. When my husband David and I are asked the question or consider the question as to why we have had two children who have born, been born and died with a fatal syndrome. We believe that we have experienced the natural result of living in a world that is under a curse. A world in which our bodies, our very genetic code has been corrupted. And at the same time, we can see that God has used this to train us and shape us. And we don't think he did that as an afterthought, as an attempt to try to figure out something good to do with this bad thing that happened in our lives that originally was outside of his control somehow. We believe that every day of hope and Gabriel's and Matt's and David and Nancy's life was ordained by God even before we were born. Some of you will think of Psalm 139 that says, when I was woven together in my mother's womb, every day of my life was written in your book before one of them came to be. (laughs) You see, God doesn't sit back And allow our circumstances or Satan to hurt us. And then step in to try to figure out how to make it something good out of it. He's no passive observer who finally becomes involved only afterward to say, well, guess I'm going to have to figure out how to do something good with this. 
You see, he has a purpose and a design in what is happening into our lives from the very beginning. And even though what might be what is happening to us might not be good, he intends to use it for our ultimately good. And so ultimately what matters is not that we know to whom or to what to give the responsibility for our suffering. What matters is that we are convinced that God loves us and that his love for us is not a sentimental thing. It's not simply a commitment to our comfort. His love for us is an active commitment to our ultimate good and his eternal purposes. And when the winds of suffering have blown the hardest in my life, there are two significant things I have grabbed hold of that have kept me from being swept away from alienation from God. And one of them, certainly the most significant truth, is that God is sovereign in this world and he can and will use everything, no matter how dark, for my ultimate good because I am his. And that doesn't mean I'm Pollyanna or play down the hurts of this life. It means that when I grab hold of the confidence that God is using the worst thing I can imagine for my ultimate good, then I can see light behind, beyond the darkness. It gives my suffering meaning. The other thing I've grabbed hold of is that God loves me. We need them both, don't we? If he just loves me, but he's not in control, I don't want that God. (laughs) And if he's in control and making things happen in this world, but he doesn't really love me, I don't want that God either. So we grab hold of the confidence that he's sovereign and he does love us. You see, ladies, God uses painful, difficult experiences in our lives for our ultimate good. So that we can actually come to the place that we look back on the hard, dark things in our lives and say, you know, there was a time in my life I labeled that as the worst thing that ever happened to me. But I can look back over my life and see how God has used it for good. Well, here's the truth in this, ladies. No matter what the cause of suffering is in my life or your life, God has ordained it. And he will use it for your ultimate good. And if that's the truth, then I have to ask you, are you ready to stop focusing on who's to blame for the suffering in your life so you can instead turn your focus to inviting God to use it for good in your life and in the lives of others? The second question Job struggled with and we struggled is, with is another aspect of this question, why? Why am I suffering? At one point along our journey, David was reading a book by Philip Yancey, and he suggested phrasing this question another way, turning it. He's, he said, rather than asking why, to, to ask the question, to what end? And I would say it this way, for what purpose? Now, Job asked this question, why? over and over 
throughout the book of Job. In Job 7, 19 through 20, he says, Why won't you leave me alone even for a moment? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of all humanity? Why have you made me your target? I mean, this is the question that we all have when we suffer. And I find it's the question that haunts most people who've suffered deeply. And that, in fact, many people get stuck on this question. There's a sense in which until they can understand and articulate exactly why uh, God allowed the accident, the abuse, whatever it is, until they can articulate why, it's like they can not move forward at all. They stay stuck right there. But I've come to think that even if we got an explanation, even if God were like to hire one of those airplanes to ride out in the sky, <laughs> why God has allowed what has caused you pain, I think we would look at it and there would, it wouldn't be good enough for us. <laughs> if we could understand it in the first place. So, Ultimately, I think this pursuit we have for an explanation is ultimately an unsatisfying pursuit. What we really want, more than an explanation, is a sense of meaning and purpose, right? A deep sense that our suffering is not random or meaningless. Well, as we try to figure out what the meaning or purpose might be in our suffering, we are so fortunate that we have so much more to go on than Job had. (laughs) We have this whole book. We have the Old and the New Testament. So in our quest to understand why or the purpose for which God might have allowed suffering into our lives... Let's take a few minutes and look at a few New Testament passages. And as we do this, I want you to listen as I read these because quite often you're going to hear the term, this happened so that. I mean, it's almost like it's there to answer the question why. You were wondering why? So that. Okay, so we listen for that. Turn to 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. If 2 Corinthians, it comes after the four Gospels, after Acts. Romans, then you come to 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. So listen for the answer to what was the purpose, okay? Um, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. He's saying, we thought we were going to die. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So what purpose does God have in our suffering well, one purpose is that the suf- for the suffering in our life is so that we will recognize our need for him. Have you ever said, or have you ever had somebody say to you, I hear this all the time, well, they'll tell me about a struggle, and then we say, 
well, I know God will never give me more than I can handle. Have you heard that? Have you said that? (laughs) It's not true. (laughs) God will repeatedly give you more than you can handle. (laughs) You see, he wants to teach you not to rely on yourself, but to rely on God. Ladies, it's not a sign of weakness to rely on God. That is a sign of spiritual strength. God wants to use the suffering in your life to shake you of the sin of self-reliance so that you will become more God-reliant. Let's look for another purpose for which God uses suffering. Turn a few pages to 2 Corinthians 12. Now, we're going to Paul, we're going to discover a way Paul suffered here. Now, how did Paul suffer? We we would know from the previous chapter that Paul suffered significantly, that he had been stoned, he had been whipped 39 lashes another times. He's been cold, he's been hungry, he's been shipwrecked. I mean, this is a guy who knows significant suffering, right? And so um, when we come to 2 Corinthians 12 here, let's read it. He says, to keep me from becoming, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited, did you hear a purpose yet? Okay. Because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that, so that, did you hear it? So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, we don't really know what this thorn in the flesh was that Paul is alluding to. But because we know how much he has suffered before without talking a lot about it, this must have been an unrelenting agony. This thorn in the flesh, it's not like a little prick. This is more like a stake in his life, something he feels impaled by. And he's saying that this suffering has been, is purposeful in his life. Well, what is the purpose? There's a number of them here, but we see it especially in Jesus' response to him, where Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So a second purpose of suffering is that so that we can experience the sufficiency of God's grace. So we can discover that he really can be enough for us in the pain that he does not take away from us. Often people will say something to me or David and sometimes they'll say, you know what you've experienced, I could never handle that. And sometimes we like to have a little fun and and say back to them, you know what, you're right. (laughs) You couldn't. But then we are quick to add, but here's what's important. You see, you look at this and you think you couldn't handle it. 
because you don't have the grace from for it from God because you don't need it. So look at our lives and see that God has given us the grace that we have needed when we needed it. Not before we needed it, when we needed it. And so look at our lives and become confident that God will also give you the grace that you need to face whatever he allows into your life. And he will give it to you in the timing and in the form and in the quantity in which you need it. You see, when Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, he is saying, I'm going to be enough for you. And he's saying that to you too. He's saying, I'm going to be enough for you to face the empty bedroom and the empty place at the table, an empty bed, and a deep emptiness in your heart and soul, in your family, in your life, in your bank account, Whatever it is, he says, my grace will be sufficient. I will be enough. I can fill up the empty places in your heart and in your life. And I have to tell you that this has been a freeing discovery in my life. (laughs) I used to live with a lot of fear about the future and what it would be like to lose someone important to me. And I have to tell you, I don't live with that fear so much anymore. And the reason for that is that I have discovered in the lowest place of life that he has been enough for me. (laughs) You see, I don't believe it now just because I read it in the Bible. I believe it because I've experienced it. And so as I look down the future and recognize that there may be more suffering that comes into my life, I'm not as afraid as I used to be. Because in the lowest places of my life, I have discovered that he has been enough for me. He has given me the grace that I have needed. He has put his strength and sufficiency and power on display in my life. You know, I had a friend who lost her job, kind of a high-profile job. And I remember she came over to see me that day, and, and I said to her, you know what? You've got a big opportunity here because everybody's going to be watching to see how you respond to this. And you know what suffering does, ladies? It's like suffering comes along and it draws back the curtain on our inner life and reveals what's really inside, right? (laughs) And I told my friend, you know, the curtain is being drawn back on your life and everybody's going to see what's really inside. And the question is, What will they see? Is your life a display case for the sufficiency and the glory and the power of God at work in your life? What does it mean to show Christ in these hard places of life? Well, the truth is that suffering reveals Christ's dramatic strength in contrast to our weakness. Let's go on to another one, James 1. Two and four, two through four. Just go a few more pages there. Well, quite a few more pages. James is always hard to find because it's very short. It's after Hebrews, before first and second Peter. James one, verses two through four. 
James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the third purpose we find in suffering is that God uses suffering to bring us to full maturity. Now, what is your preferred method for growing as a Christian? I know. Let's like come to a weekend conference, right? (laughs) And take lots of notes. I mean, that's our preferred method, right? And certainly God uses that to teach us and mature us, and it's a very good thing. But unfortunately, that is not God's preferred method for helping us to grow up as believers. He has a whole other way of doing it. (laughs) His chosen method to mature us as believers is that we would face difficulties And we would persevere through those difficulties with the faith that he gives us so that we become completely equipped for service. So that our roots go deeper in him and our joy becomes less fleeting. But I also have to make it clear that just experiencing suffering doesn't make us mature. Plenty of people, plenty of women experience incredible suffering. And they don't grow at all in the process. They never embrace the purpose, this purpose for which God has for suffering. Instead, they throw everything they've got into praying the suffering away. And then when that doesn't happen, they feel completely justified on turning their back on God, whom they think has fallen down on the job. It's the suffering we persevere through, ladies. The suffering that we fight for joy in. The suffering that we grab hold of God more tightly in. The suffering that drives us deeper into God's word to figure out. That is the suffering that helps us to become spiritually mature. Another suffering, I'm sorry, another purpose in suffering is that it gives us the opportunity to live out genuine faith. Turn a few pages to 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, and listen for that, so that, answering the question to, to why. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, we read, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire. These have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This writer is clearly answering the question why. These have come so that your faith might be proved genuine. And here again, this is not the first time we've had a writer suggest to us that we should have joy when we suffer. I mean, what is that about? (laughs) Well, here's what I think it's about. He's saying the joy comes when you discover that when the rubber hits the road in your life, that this faith you have given lip service to so long in your life and in the church, the joy is in discovering that it's the real deal. It is proved genuine. This is 
we, we go from having a book knowledge of what faith is all about to experiencing it, experiencing the life of faith. When our faith is proved genuine, what happens is it's the difference between uh, studying roller coaster design and riding on one. Okay? It's the difference between looking at pictures of the beach and feeling the waves wash over you. We experience, we get to live out faith. Ladies, this is what faith is for. <laughs> this is where faith, whether or not you are a woman of faith, is revealed. Because frankly, who cares if you give a lot of lip service to faith when everything's really good in your life? But when you lose what is most precious to you, and you exhibit a supernatural sense of joy and peace. You see, when you choose to trust instead of complain, when you choose to accept rather than complain, when you forgive rather than holding on to resentment, when you choose to respond in humility rather than be out to prove that you were right, the genuineness of God at work on the interior of your life is proven. The curtain is pulled back on your life. And what is seen is genuine faith. So I have to ask you this morning, has suffering in your life allowed your faith to be proven genuine? Or has it actually revealed a lack of genuine faith in your life? And when I ask you that, ladies, I'm not suggesting that you've got to try harder and do better. (laughs) Because it's not up to you to try harder to become more faithful. Actually, it's our complete inability (laughs) to ever live this way that drives us to Christ. You see, Jesus Christ was perfectly faithful in the midst of the ultimate hardship of unimaginable suffering. And ladies, when we suffer, if our lives have been joined to his life, it's going to show. It's going to be obvious. And maybe it won't be as perfect or as consistent as we would hope, but the genuineness of faith will be there. Now, while there may be many other ways that God uses the suffering in our life, we're going to draw our abbreviated list to a close with what I think is one of the most meaningful ways for which God used suffering. So go back where we started in 2 Corinthians. Again, in 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1. Beginning in verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. You see, God wants you to use the sorrow over your miscarriage to be the first person on the doorstep of that young woman you know who experiences a miscarriage, offering her the companionship of someone who has been there. You see, God wants you to use 
the loneliness and alienation you felt when you were walking through a divorce and everybody avoided you so that you will become a true comfort as you boldly enter into the life of someone else who's going through a divorce who feels so alone. God wants you God wants to use your testimony of the faith of his faithfulness in your hard circumstances to encourage others to believe that he will be faithful to them too. Do you want your suffering to go to waste? Well, if you do, just keep it to yourself. Be sure that you don't let it break your heart in ways that prompt you to reach out to other brokenhearted people. Do you want your suffering to be profitable, meaningful, purposeful? Then allow your suffering to open your eyes to the hurting people all around you, people that you may have never even noticed before. And then boldly enter into their lives and their pain and walk with them through it. Can you see that God is purposeful in the suffering that he allows into our lives? Ladies, ultimately, God wants to use the suffering in your life not to disfigure you. He wants to use it to mold you and shape you into a woman who thinks and acts and looks like Christ. And so the real question of the morning is, are you moldable? If he's brought this suffering into your life, wanting to mold you and shape you, are you moldable? Or are you too stiff, too stubborn, Are you too angry to be molded into a mature woman of God whose greatest joy, greatest pleasure is to embrace God's purposes in your suffering so that you might rely on him harder, finding him to be everything you need so that you can become a balm of comfort to others in this hurting world? Well, we all have these why questions when we suffer. Are you questioning why in a spirit wanting to understand the bigger picture of what God is doing in your life? Or have you used your unanswered questions as an excuse, as an excuse to keep God at a distance, to walk away from him? Ladies, as you ask God the big questions that we all have in the hearts of life, who is to blame? Why has this happened? What's the purpose in it? Would you question him in pursuit of him? Would you pour out your questions at his feet in humility and brokenness, asking him to reveal himself to you? Asking him to give you the strength to hold on to him in the hardest places of life. The strength you need to embrace him. And ladies, would you also be willing to accept 
that you may not get all of your questions answered in this lifetime to your liking. (laughs) You know, God may not give you all of the answers that you're looking for in your questioning, in your pursuit of him. But I can promise you this. He will give himself to you. And when he does, all of your questions won't seem so important anymore. 